With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 20th episode of my show. I'm excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, highlight current issues that really need to be discussed more, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. My June Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 1st. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You could sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy and or security go-to person is at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Today, my tip of the week relates to one of the topics in my June tips. Do you have an Alexa, Echo, Google Assistant, smart toy, smart TV, or any other type of listening smart device? Well, if you do... Be aware that there are still many engineering problems with many of these devices and their associated apps. And these problems are causing them to listen and record what is going on in the environment at all times, oftentimes. And then sometimes they are taking actions on your behalf. Recently, I spoke with NBC News Network about the recent revelation that a woman in Portland, Oregon, had her private conversations secretly recorded by the voice-controlled Amazon Alexa in her home. Then, that recording was sent to a random contact of hers in Seattle. Now, this has caused increasing concerns about the vulnerabilities in smart gadgets that are listening. So here's my tip for you this week. If you have a smart device that listens, and keep in mind most also record what they're hearing, also they're listening to what's going on in the vicinity of the smart device, so keep that in mind. And if you don't think that you're going to need it at the moment, Simply turn it all the way off and unplug the devices. Now, sure, that will defeat some of the ease of use. But, you know, seriously, what takes longer, 10 to 20 seconds to plug your device back in and turn it on 
or weeks, months, or even years of trying to undo an action that a smart device took inappropriately by something that the device thought it heard and misinterpreted. Really, most so-called smart devices are not so smart after all. Now, today, I'm discussing a topic that is really, really hot all over the entire world. On May 25th of this year, did you notice an avalanche of emails and text messages coming to you from a wide range of organizations? Some you may not have even recognized coming into your inbox or onto your smartphone telling you that because they care so very much about your privacy that they had updated their privacy policies and wanted to make sure that you were aware of them. Well, you know what? That goodwill was probably forced by the European Union General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, as you probably have more commonly heard it referenced. The GDPR went into effect on May 25th, and one of the many requirements within the 99 articles within that huge regulation, those articles are also like sections uh, of requirements within that regulation. One of the many requirements is to ensure that those individuals that you communicate with, collect personal data from, and so on, have been provided notice from the organization that sends them communications and that collect their personal data and, well, otherwise those with whom they have some type of contact. I received during that entire week of May 21st over 80 of such email notices and around a dozen or more additional notices the following week. Now, the GDPR is a very broad set of regulations, as I indicated, with 99 articles that each contain one to sometimes many specific requirements related to personal data and how it must be protected, uh, restrictions on use and sharing, requirements for giving individuals access to their own personal data, and many other rights for the data subjects. Today, I want to focus on just three of those many topics that I see a lot of confusion about in online discussions and at seminars and meetings. And I'm seeing a lot of incorrect information being circulated about these issues, which truly are the core issues that must be understood if you want to truly then be able to be in compliance with GDPR. So number one, I want to look at all those email notifications and, you know, were they really necessary, all of them, for GDPR compliance? Then number two, examine exactly what type of information is considered to be personal data and in what possible forms, and then three, the types of organizations and people that must comply with GDPR. Today, my guest is Arielle Silverstone. 
external data protection officer and managing director at Data Protectors, which is co-based in the United States and in the EU. Now, Ariel has been addressing business information, privacy, security, and risk challenges for over 20 years as a designer of information privacy and security processes and policies to address the most demanding challenges in the field. He's also a pioneer in information security strategy and engineering, business risk and management solutions. Previously, he was the vice president for security strategy, privacy and trust at GoDaddy. He also contributed to the cloud computing security strategy at Microsoft and acted as the chief trusted security advisor to some of Cisco's largest customers. Ariel is a speaker at industry events and he's appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Computer World, and many other leading publications. Ariel is a registered data protection officer for Germany. France, and Poland. Ariel, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's start by clarifying. I mean, you've done a lot. You have this title of Registered Data Protection Officer for Germany, France, and Poland. Can you explain to our international and U.S.-based um, listeners, and we have listeners who are not only in the general public, but a lot from the business world too. Does that mean that you're providing services only in those three countries, or can you provide services to all the countries? Maybe expand a little bit about what it means to be a registered data protection officer. Thank you. So uh, the GDPR and the accompanying national laws in each of the EU countries and affiliated uh, has two terms. Uh, term number one is data protection officer and term number two is a representative. Mm -hmm. Data protection officer can work uh, in any country of the EU and act as a data protection officer for any company in the world. Mm -hmm. A representative, which is a specific designation, is required to be for an EU resident uh, acting on behalf of companies that do not have, or some companies that do have, offices and physical locations in the EU. Okay. I can act as both. Ah, okay. So then for being a registered data protection officer for Germany, France, and Poland, what are you doing in those three countries beyond all the other EU countries? Sure. So these are some of the heaviest trafficked countries in the sense of personal data flowing in and out of them. Um, some other countries have a requirement for someone to be a resident in them in order to be a registered data protection officer, for example, mm. Malta. And I interact in terms of performing the gamut of data protection services from internal compliance all the way to addressing data subject access requests, both under the GDPR and other legislation. Ah, okay. And that's, I think, a good point that you bring up other legislation because the GDPR applies to all the EU, but each country also has its own data protection laws, correct? 
Yes, each country in the EU has usually more than one data protection uh, regulation. Most of them uh, take the GDPR as a basis. All of them should, but uh, at least one country didn't have a government until recently. Mm. And they emphasize the sections that they care about more. For example, Germany tightened many of the GDPR's requirements regarding German data residents. Okay, so that means that even if you're meeting the, the requirements under GDPR, you better know what the specific requirements are for the, the personal data you have from folks in Germany, as your example, because there might be some additional requirements on top of the GDPR. Am I explaining that correct? Correct. And in the case of Germany, there are different penalties, generally higher, and different subsets of organizations have to comply with additional or different measures. Okay. Well, that's a very important point. I think a lot of organizations, you know, they view uh, GDPR compliance. I've seen a lot of discussion online, you know, on LinkedIn and and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, A lot of companies thought, well, I'll just send out my notice (laughs) with my emails and I don't have to worry about it. And that brings me to that first topic I wanted to to, to go over with you. So, you know, we saw a tsunami of emails. I mean, like I said, I got over 80. Um, what were some of the most common problems you saw with all of the organizations sending out those messages? Because, um, you know, when should they have sent those out? And do you think all of those emails were actually justified? So those are, those are very good questions. Uh, the emails should have been going out years ago. Um, mm-hmm. The GDPR just created an avalanche or tsunami, as you referred to it, but in virtue of uh, holding certain companies' feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. Generally, the view is in Europe that the data about you belongs to you and not to the company that may hold it. Mm-hmm. The emails generally meant those companies are not sure whether they got appropriate consent from you to use or process or sell your data. Right. Uh, Some of those emails did not have the significant notice required. Some of them did not have the mandated requirement for what we call a hard opt-in. In other words, not answering the email is not an opt-in. But overall, uh, I think everybody was a little surprised to see just who has their own data. Right. Well, a lot of those emails that I received, I had not even heard of the the company before. And it was like, why are they sending me this? Because I've never asked them for information before. Um, You know, and that wasn't explained in, in the email message. So I would anticipate that would be a big problem if they were trying to be, you know, send those out for re- compliance with GDPR. That would be a problem that they didn't say where they got my data from to begin with or what they were even using it for. Well, as a data subject, if you're concerned, you should write them. You should mm-hmm. ask them for where the data came from, what are they doing with the data, and who do these provide, sell, or otherwise share the data with. Mm-hmm. You also are completely unable to request deletion, which they generally have to comply with. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you have 
the ownership of the data. They should not be able to, for example, market to you or share your data with any other party without getting your consent. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of those emails, too, I was surprised I got a notice from because, like you indicated, if the company wasn't sure whether or not they had actually gotten explicit opt-in from the people that they sent them to, that that's when they sent them. But, you know, some of the people that sent me these notices, I had knowingly and had to sign up to get their newsletters. So I was thinking, well, I've already actively done an opt-in. So why are they sending this out to me uh, again? Because I had explicitly already opted in. So they didn't have to tell me once more that I had an opportunity to opt in, right? I mean, did you see a lot of unnecessary emails being sent out in that way too? Actually not. Uh, There is a concept in the EU that consent, if that is the reason for collecting data about you, is Mm -hmm. perishable. Therefore, once you give consent, the company still has multiple obligations. For example, the company has to make sure that the data about you that they have is up to date. And the second uh, requirement is that they should ask for consent from time to time. And the amount of time varies together with the sensitivity of the data. So I welcome all those emails. Some of them definitely triggered, in my case, 70 explicit requests to be opted out and erased. Ah. But, yeah, but uh, I don't think the flood is, is, has stopped. I mm-hmm. expect that as the um, law becomes a little bit more enforced and mm-hmm. there is more case law, that more and more companies from across the pond, specifically the EU, uh, know, the people in the EU know about their responsibilities. People in America or perhaps China are not fully aware that the GDPR applies to them. And I expect this uh, flood to be diminished, but continue for the foreseeable future. Well, it reminded me a lot of several years ago, if you're familiar with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or or GLBA, Uh when they had a requirement that went into effect um, in, I forget if it was in June or July of the year it went into effect, but it was that you had to give notice annually to all your financial customers about their privacy rights. And all of a sudden, and again, it's been several years ago, but all of a sudden it was kind of the same thing, except instead of of emails at that time, it was receiving, you know, hard copy letters in the mail, some emails certainly, but um, this reminds me kind of way back then when uh, the GLBA went into effect and all of a sudden I heard from every single bank, credit card company, credit union, financial organization of any kind, some that I'd never heard of before, all of a sudden I got all of this mail from them all at once in the month. But the the difference seemed to be here that it was all on the same day. So I really get your point about the fact that it's good to decide, you know, when you're going to occasionally send it out. But it seems like now it's kind of been 
a de facto date to have May 25th when we're going to start seeing uh, maybe annually. It'll, it'll be interesting next year to see if we see all of those notices again on the same day when people, the, uh, the organizations decide to send them out again. Yeah, and I think uh, organizations, especially those that are outside the EU, are not yet used to the idea that uh, the penalties are quite as severe as the GDPR and related national legislation mm-hmm. create. Uh, it can be 4% of your company's annual income, not profit. It right. Can, under some conditions, create a situation for a CEO to go to prison. Uh, it's quite massive, it's quite comprehensive, and it has been discussed uh, for the last 25 years or so. Yeah, I mean, before uh, GDPR, there certainly was the EU Data Protection Directive. So, you know, that's been around a long time, but it w- it didn't have all the details and it certainly didn't have the penalties. So, you know, that's one of the many big differences from... Uh, the data protection directive now to the GDPR, you have that enforced penalty that everybody's waiting to see how how large the fines are going to be. I mean, what do you expect the fines to be as far as the first one, since we already have lawsuits or complaints filed against Facebook, against uh, Google, I believe, and some of the other big, big organizations? It's a great question. I I believe personally that there are more than 1,500 complaints already. Uh, 1,500? Wow. Yes. I also believe that there are roughly 3,000 requests by various regulators in Europe for uh, letters of explanations for various Mm. organizations on how they protect data. Mm -hmm. Uh, Traditionally, those letters uh, result in, if not replied to, they result in a penalty. Right. I expect the bulk of the penalties initially to not be severe. The the bigger penalties will take, this is a guess, uh, longer than a year to see. But once they come, they come. And it's going to be different because we're dealing with people, right? Mm -hmm. So if they believe, if the regulators believe that your organization has made a good faith, real effort and progress, Mm-hmm. To comply with the GDPR, you should expect a different level of attention than if it seems that you don't comply with data subject access rights or your privacy statement is not up to snuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as a reminder, some of those things are quite easy for automatic tools to deduct. Right. And I expect that will be a good source uh, of inquiry later, letters to come out. And related to that, something that is, you know, just the very basic thing that I see a lot of organizations not doing is understanding and actually documenting within their organization what personal data, what that term, what that label applies to as it relates to GDPR and as it relates to their business. So how do you explain to your clients the definition of personal data as it applies to GDPR? Personal data, according to the GDPR, is anything that could identify a natural person or a small group of people. Mm-hmm. The tricky part, of course, is where it says could and mm-hmm. small group of people. So it doesn't have to identify you. It can right. make it statistically significant 
significantly easier to identify you and anything that could help with that to a specific resolution is considered PII. Mm-hmm. Some of the data that is PII is also SPI for specialized. Uh, the definition is inclusive of things like HIPAA data uh, in the US, but it goes far, far beyond that. Anything to do with your religious life, political life, whether you belong to a union, and medical data are all SPI. So the really sensitive personal information uh would be how you'd be thinking about that. And I think it's important too. I, you know, like you said, if it can point to you, then that's personal information. So, you know, a lot of organizations think, well, we have the results of big data analytics. So that's not personal information because we created that. So how, you know, we didn't collect that directly from someone, but uh, I would think, and I imagine that, the regulators uh, in the EU would think, too, if that data that was generated through big data analytics, if it can reveal something about a specific individual or, like you said, a, a small group of individuals, wouldn't that be considered personal information also? Absolutely. In fact, the regulators wrote into the GDPR specific attention to what they refer to as new technologies. Mm. And they gave explanations that new technologies definitely include big data cloud computing, and many other things that we are taking more or less for granted for the last few years. And the level of risk presented by those technologies is deemed to be uh, obviously higher by -hmm. the GDPR and by accompanying guidance. And, you know, something, too, I think organizations don't realize, and I hear this all the time. I imagine you did, too. People say, well, we don't have personal data. We have aggregated data that we feed into our big data analytics. So um, I think it's important uh, that organizations realize that if your big data analytics was using even what they might think is de-identified data, if the results point to an individual, then it becomes personal information. I mean... Don't you think that's that would be the case as well? Absolutely. In fact, depends on what the results are. Anything that could be seen as indicative of a future behavior or um, state of mind is also considered to be SPI and therefore highly regulated by the GDPR. Oh, great. Well, we have a, a break we need to get to right now. So let's pick up at that point when we come back and then we can get to those other topics as well. So, yeah, thank you. Now's a time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We are speaking today with Ariel Silverstone, External Data Protection Officer and Managing Director at Data Protectors about GDPR compliance. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide topics, uh, suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Also through my website, Simbus360.com, PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today, we are speaking with Ariel Silverstone, External Data Protection Officer and Managing Director at Data Protectors about GDPR compliance. Now, before the break, we were talking about big data analytics and how it can actually be used to reveal new insights about different specific individuals. But, you know, something that can also point out specific information about individuals is DNA. And over the years, there's been a lot of controversy, a lot of discussions um, about you know, is DNA actually personal information or not? And then kind of a step beyond that is the actual physical um, representation of DNA personal information. So, Ariel, I know you've been working on DNA and the use of it as personal information. What can you tell our listeners about that? Well, DNA is personal information. If DNA has enough characteristics in it, to identify a person, some would say it is the ultimate personal information. Mm-hmm. And depends on what you achieve out of the DNA or the combination of DNA and other technologies, this could be the most risky part of uh, the data world 
in which one can engage. So when you deal with DNA, you need to do a thorough data protection impact assessment to assess what risk could be driven by the DNA or DNA slice to the data subject. Well, and and related to that, you it goes beyond just the the actual digital data about the DNA, but you know, there's a lot of of healthcare researchers and labs that have the actual physical samples of that DNA. So doesn't it become very important for them to also control access to the physical samples as well? Absolutely. The physical sample does contain PII, and I would think the most difficult set of data for one to change about themselves is the way their DNA works. Mm-hmm. Once it's compromised, many things about an individual can be defined. For example, uh, uh, likelihood of getting certain diseases or mm-hmm. likelihood to be better at certain things than others. So when you think about that, just imagine it's not only healthcare um, researchers, but so many organizations, at least in the U.S., I don't know about the rest of the world, have you know people who donate blood, and a lot of times they have blood donation within your business. You know, at once a quarter, it's blood donor day, so you have organizations coming for the blood donations, the Red Cross, and so on. So all of those organizations now, this is going to be something that they need to think about. Um, maybe looking at and doing the PIA, like you mentioned, over how they're handling not only the the digital data, but also the physical uh, data, <laughs> the physical representation, I guess, of the data, the blood and the plasma that they're collecting, correct? Yes. Uh, the, the data doesn't have to sit on a floppy disk, a hard disk mm-hmm. drive, or in a cloud. It can be stored in DNA one must control who has access and what is done with that access to those living records. And, you know, now that we're hitting this about how DNA and the physical representation is considered personal data, what other types of personal data have you discussed with your EU and your U.S. clients and other locations throughout the world that they we're surprised to discover we're personal data. Well, generally, any CCTV, any monitoring of a person or a group of people is either very regulated or downright forbidden without a specific context in the EU. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many cases, the employee cannot give permission to the employer to videotape them. Uh, many companies find that, and the idea that a picture may no longer be on a badge Uh, from time to time, to be highly uh, surprising. Well, and talking about that, here's something that I've had a lot of people uh, say to me, because I was recently at a Secure World Expo conference in Atlanta, and we were discussing GDPR and privacy, and a lot of people were saying, well, in Europe, there's surveillance cameras all over the cities um, for safety, of course, but, you know, the, the common question was, well, are those in compliance with GDPR? Do they, do they have notices for those somewhere? I mean, how's that related to GDPR compliance, all of that surveillance for safety purposes? One of the allowed reasons to collect and process a person's data 
is the existence of a national legislation that is allowing a specific use for that data. In virtually all those countries, there is legislation to protect uh, life and limb, allowing specific type of monitoring. And yes, generally, there are warnings that those CCTV systems are in use, but uh, the data is only allowed to be used for specific, let's call them, anti-terrorism activities, and okay. as such is legal in those countries. So, you know, here in the U.S. we have surveillance too, but what worries me, quite frankly, a lot of times is the fact that that data, once collected, it it exists forever. I mean, at least, you know, not only the original, but copies. So in the EU, if they aren't using that surveillance, um, all those surveillance feeds that they recorded, do they get rid of them after a while and do that as part of GDPR or do they also accumulate that over time? Or is, And I, I'm, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, it just seems interesting to me and it seems related to this topic, certainly. Well, keeping data is expensive. The only thing that is probably more expensive than keeping data is not having data about somebody that you should for, again, a national safety, uh, law enforcement, and anti-terrorism activity. I don't have specific knowledge of how long the data is kept by national authorities, but one would assume that with technology today, much of the data is broken into what we call hash tables and referred to. Mm-hmm. However, some data may simply be said to never be deleted. Okay, okay. So some of that data is going to continuously be collected. Some might be deleted. Now, we've we've hit upon the different types of personal data and how it can take many forms. Here's another area that I've heard a lot of confusion about. Who must comply with GDPR? Because let me give you a few scenarios. So how do you explain, though, first to your clients – what obligates them to comply with GDPR and, and the types of individuals that it, it applies to or if it applies to generally all types of individuals? That's a fantastic question. The GDPR applies to people that are EU people. It does not require people to be residents in the EU or citizens of the EU. Simply people that are in the EU, although one would assume not momentarily, their data is protected by the GDPR, regardless of where in the world that data is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that data is protected full stop, as long as they are natural people, as opposed to, say, companies, which might be artificial uh, constructs. So if I'm, uh, let's say there's an EU citizen, somebody from France, and they come over to the United States on vacation and they're here for three-week vacation, so they're going to hotels, they're giving them their credit cards, which were issued in France. They are uh, providing their name and their addresses in France. Do the different businesses, the hotels, the restaurants, you know, how about the organizations here in the U.S. or in other countries that are collecting EU citizens personal information while they're here, you know, do they have to follow GDPR or is it only while the different individuals are actually in the EU and how can you even tell sometimes? 
that's a that's exactly the point. The data is protected for the EU person. If the EU is visiting the US, that's nice. The data is still protected and those American companies, unless that EU person is just accidentally in that location, in that hotel, uh, and there's no no other people, for example. In other words, there is an exception in the GDPR for accidental or occasional processing. Mm-hmm. However, generally, data for those people is protected regardless of where in the world they are, what they do, and uh, how long they stay there. Right. So if, if there is someone who is a citizen of the EU, you better make sure that you're following the GDPR if you're collecting their data or using their data in some way or, you know, deriving their data from big data analytics. Would you say that would be a fair statement or does that need some? Um, almost. Okay. almost. The people do not have to be a resident of the EU. They can be EU person. In other words, let's say they were born in a third country uh-huh. and emigrated to Europe last year. They're not yet a citizen and they're visiting the EU's. The, the U.S., their data is still covered by the GDPR. So maybe that's their home um, location. Would that be something then that even if they're not a citizen, if they're are a resident, would that be a good way to put that? Yes, people that are present in the EU. So even if uh, you went to Europe and stayed there a significant amount of time, I'll just use a guide rule of uh, 90 days, okay. your data then is protectable. Okay. So that, that's good to know because I've heard lot, even the lawyers discussing this, lawyers from the EU, lawyers from the U.S., and I think it's one of those things that, you know, often gets <laughs> discussed like, oh, we don't have to follow that because, you know, we aren't based there or we have a website, but, you know, we don't want to have to follow GDPR. So you've probably heard too and seen all of those uh, stories about how organizations now aren't even allowing their websites to be viewed in the EU because they don't want to comply with GDPR. <laughs> well, I, we all know of such examples. I don't know that they don't want to comply. I do believe that in many cases it's, they are unable to certify compliance. Well, that's a good way uh, to put it. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, out of uh, a plethora of ca- caution, abundance right. of caution, they prefer to come across as not marketing to the EU at this time. And of course, that costs them a lot of money. If we're talking, for example, I believe the Los Angeles Times. Right. So a lot of them, I think, too, from what I understand, they're they're turning it off, not permanently, but temporarily while they try to figure it out. That's my understanding, too. It cost them a lot of money in the sense of advertisers lost. Yeah. So then let's say I have – I contract services from an organization based in the EU, and that organization has employees working for them. They are residents or citizens of the EU. And so I, since they're doing work for me – um, I have their names, I have their email addresses, I have their uh, phone numbers. So if you have employees or contracted workers who are in the EU or citizens of the EU, then um, you have to also comply with GDPR, right? Absolutely. In fact, you don't even need to go that far. I'll give an example. 
If you have website visitors that are not customers of yours or not yet, Mm -hmm. if you have candidates for employment, employees, um, visitors, physical visitors to your to your uh, location, and of course, also your customers, they are all human beings. The data Mm -hmm. is protected. Um, The one thing that I must clarify is. If the numbers, phone numbers, and the email address belong to the organization, they are not necessarily uh, information that is protected on the GDPR. Whereas if it is their home email address, for example, xyz at hotmail.com, then it is. The email address itself is protected by the GDPR. So for email addresses, like with Canada, with their privacy requirements, it applies to business contact information. Are you saying that GDPR does not apply? Like if I, if I, if uh, you were based in the EU, and of course you are kind of co-located and and doing work over there, if I send you an email to your email address that you use for business, um, that would not be considered as personal information, personal data. I mean. Not necessarily. It would not. However, my first and last name certainly are. So that's where I think with these situations, it becomes so important for a privacy impact assessment to determine based on the context of the situation what needs to be done, right? Absolutely. The privacy impact assessment seldom finds that email exists on its own without additional data about the individual. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So that's something that's such a switch for so many organizations because, um, and I don't know if you've seen this, but in past years, most organizations were only concerned about the personal information of patients or of customers, of consumers, and they, they kind of let their employee information sit out there, you know, out in the open, if you will. It's like they, not in the open, but they just didn't put enough effort into to securing it and controlling how that information was being used. And now they really need to do that. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that an employee would have more personal data and probably more special personal data or sensitive personal data stored at their employer than anywhere else. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, especially then talking about employees, a lot of the organizations in the U.S. and in other countries do such things as background checks Mm -hmm. on their employees, especially for certain types of jobs like in healthcare, in transportation. If somebody's going to be a driver, of course, you want to make sure that they're you know, don't have a, a history of of wrecks when they're driving or of drug use that makes it so you can't trust that they're going to drive. What are the types of restrictions? Have that, those changed? Any of that changed with the GDPR, um, how you should view that type of personal information? In generally, yes. Uh, the biggest change has been uh, with that regard harmonization of data uh, protection requirements across Europe. However, if there is a national legislation that requires for you, uh, before you become a financial agent, a stockbroker, or many other type of uh, employer to have your criminal background check, or in case of driving, to have your driving background check, those checks are still permitted. Ideally, however, 
the result only in a form of a yes, no, but not in the form of dates, accidents, uh, legal events, etc., could be kept on file as long as it's kept on file, again, for the proper reason and for the minimum amount of time required by law. The moment it's kept longer or contains more information, it becomes highly problematic with regarding to the GDPR and it triggers the maximum fine. Now, that's really interesting because, and you explain it very well, it's either yes or no, yes, we have a criminal record, or no, we don't, yes, we've had wrecks, or no, we don't, not, I had this type of, did this type of crime, and this is what was involved in all that, I think um, a lot of times organizations might not realize that, and a lot of organizations that are going to say, well, can we... can we get that information to help us in our decision-making process if we then delete it or get rid of it after we've made our decision? I mean, is that possible? Well, it's certainly helpful. Uh, the cases uh, vary greatly, but generally, unless there's a rec- good reason, which is translated in this case to be a national requirement under law mm-hmm. for somebody to possess criminal data, uh, even viewing that data is uh, prescribed by the GDPR. Yeah, well, and that's a good point, just viewing it. And I think a lot of organizations I've spoken to think that it has to to actually be saved on a server here in the U.S. or in another country before it applies. But just viewing it on a screen means that it's in that country, right? Exactly. Just viewing it uh, constitutes a data transfer and a data use, Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, very important for our listeners to understand. And related to this, too, a lot of the clients I've had in the U.S., they put or they collect online um, resumes and job applications. And then, you know, they have thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions, depending upon the size of the organization, of, of all these resumes and job applications with some very detailed personal information that they never hire the people and that that those people are never, you know, they don't have an established business relationship with them. So all of this data is there. They have to comply with GDPR if they have the data that's been submitted by residents of the EU, correct? Absolutely. And they have to comply regardless if that person becomes an employee or not. And all people, including employees, can ask for any of the data protection rights the EU grants them, from data erasure to uh, rectification of incorrect data. However, and I cannot emphasize this enough, once you as an organization have data like that, Mm-hmm. It's your responsibility to make sure it's correct and kept up to date. Ooh, now I know that that is a big problem for some folks. I was doing a privacy impact assessment several years ago to a large for a large tech company, and they had literally millions of records from people who had submitted their applications, but they never hired them, but they never mm-hmm. deleted the data. So. They could face, if somebody submitted a complaint and an investigation was done and all that data was discovered, they could face some huge fines and penalties, couldn't they? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the first rule of thumb is Mm -hmm. if you do not need the data, don't keep it. 
Mm-hmm. Don't access it in the first place, but assume right. that there was a reason. If you no longer need it, do not keep it. It's a prince. It's a the principle of necessity. Right. And I think along with that, when you get rid of it, it's more than just doing a, a delete, it, it, especially for the forms of data. Like we talked about having actual you know, blood specimens and so on, but we're talking about hard copy printout uh, data as well, information on printouts, because I've seen some organizations literally have um, warehouses full of boxes of printed data with personal information in it. Right. It's data in any form. It can be etched in stone, and it still will be data. And I'm hitting this kind of hard, and it's repetitive, but I think for my listeners, they need to understand it doesn't matter what format it is. You really need to make sure you you manage it and that you know where it's at. And that's another thing. I've seen a lot of organizations don't keep track of that data very well. Have you seen that, too, with regard to personal information? Unfortunately, I have. It is a rare organization outside the EU and outside of certain big companies in the U.S. that know where the data is. And data has a tendency to be replicated. Once it exists mm-hmm. in one system, often you'll find it on others, properly or improperly. Right. The, the need to keep all the data up to date and know where it is, comply with the protection requirements and comply with data subject requests is significant uh, and significantly expensive for organizations. So that's where it comes into play then. Minimizing the data you have minimizes the amount of data you also need to keep track of. So that's another good, a good, another good benefit to get rid of data as soon as you no longer need it anymore. That's right. So the short guide is basically if you don't need the data or cannot demonstrate why you need the data, don't keep it. Well, we have just a minute left here, believe it or not. But what would you say as we um, leave our show today? What are your parting recommendations or your, your number one recommendation beyond limiting your data that you collect and have? For your list, for our listeners, when it comes to um, GDPR and maybe identifying personal data or, or knowing whether or not you even need to comply with GDPR. Well, talk to somebody who knows. But first re- recommendation I give organizations is: do not panic. You need <laughs> to have a plan. You need to act on the plan. You need to show. Uh, significant progress, and if you find data that you don't have, like several of my clients have, you must mm-hmm. delete it properly and unrecoverably, and you should be in a good shape. Okay, that's very good advice. Um, I appreciate all your great advice today about GDPR, and thank you for being on the show, Ariel. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, it was great. And there's so many other things. I'll probably have you back on to talk about GDPR again sometime. So um, we were speaking today with Ariel Silverstone about how to comply with the GDPR. You can reach Ariel using his email, ariel at gdprpros.com. And that's A-R-I-E-L at gdprpros.com. 
GDPR.com. Today we've been speaking with Ariel Silverstone about GDPR compliance, and I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the Privacy Professor. Please tune in to the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, don't worry. You'll be able to listen to the recordings, and you can find all the recordings from all my past shows on iTunes.com, Stitcher.com, Player FM, Google Play.com, TuneIn.com, Overcast FM, ListenNotes.com, CastBox.com, in addition, of course, to our VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. And also, contact me if you need any help with information security, privacy, or compliance keynotes, or anyone to be an expert witness. You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see my appearances on the CWI Iowa Live morning shows and get in touch with me with any questions you have. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those who you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Thank you.